0: 1. Overland through Asia, pictures of Siberian, Chinese, and Targary life travels and adventures in Kamchatka, Siberia, China, Mongolia, Chinese Targary, and European Russia, with full accounts of the Siberian exiles, their treatment, condition, and mode of life, a description of the Amur River, and the Siberian shores of the frozen ocean, with an appropriate map, and nearly 200 illustrations by Thomas W. Knox. Preface. Fourteen years ago Major Perry M. C. D. Collins traversed northern Asia, and wrote an account, of his journey, entitled, A Voyage Down the Amur. With the exception of that volume no other work on this little known region has appeared from the pen of an American writer. In view of this fact, the author of Overland Through Asia, indulges the hope that his book will not be considered a superfluous addition to the literature of his country. The journey Viren recorded was undertaken partly as a pleasure trip, partly as a journalistic enterprise, and partly in the interest of the company that attempted to carry out the plans of Major Collins to make an electric connection between Europe and the United States by way of Asia and Bering Straits, in the service of the Russo-American Telegraph Company. It may not be improper to state that the author's official duties were so few, and his pleasures so numerous as to leave the kindest recollections of the many persons connected with the Enterprise. Portions of this book have appeared in Harper's, Putnam's, the Atlantic, the Galaxy, and the Overland Monthlies, and in Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper. They have been received with such favor as to encourage their reproduction wherever they could be introduced in the narrative of the journey. The largest part of the book has been written from a carefully recorded journal, and is now in print for the first time. The illustrations have been made from photographs and pencil sketches, and in all cases great care has been exercised to represent correctly the costumes of the country. To Frederick Weinker, Esquire artist of the Telegraph Expedition, and to August Hoffman, photographer, of Irkutsk, Eastern Siberia, the author is specially indebted. The orthography of geographical names is after the Russian model the author hopes it will not be difficult to convince his countrymen that the shortest form of spelling is the best, especially when it represents the pronunciation more accurately than does the old method. A frontier justice once remarked, when a lawyer ridiculed his way of writing ordinary words, that a man was not properly educated who could spell a word in only one way. On the same broad principle I will not quarrel with those who insist upon retaining an extra leper in Bering and Ohutsk and two superfluous lepers in Kamchatka. Among those not mentioned in the volume, thanks are due to Frederick MacRalish, Esquire of San Francisco, Han, F. F. Lowe of Sacramento, Alfred Weinker, Esquire of London, and the many gentlemen connected with the Telegraph Expedition. There are dozens and hundreds of individuals in Siberia and elsewhere of all grades and conditions in life, who have placed me under numberless obligations, wherever I traveled the most uniform courtesy was shown me, and though conscious that few of those dozens and hundreds will ever read these lines, I should consider myself ungrateful did I fail to acknowledge their kindness to a wandering American. TWK Chapter I right is said that an old sailor looking at the first ocean steamer, exclaimed, there's an end to seamanship, More correctly he might have predicted the end of the romance of ocean travel. Steam abridges time and space to such a degree that the world grows rapidly prosaic. Countries once distant and little known are at this day near and familiar. Railways on land and steamships on the ocean. Will transport us. At frequent and regular intervals. Around the entire globe. From New York to San Francisco and thence to our antipodes in Japan and China one may travel in defiance of propitious breezes formerly so essential to an ocean voyage. The same entiring power that bears us thither will bring us home again by way of Suez and Gibraltar to any desired port on the Atlantic coast. Scarcely more than a hundred days will be required for such a voyage. A dozen changes of conveyance and a land travel of less than a single week. The tour of the world thus performed might be found monotonous. Its most salient features beyond the overland journey from the Atlantic to the Pacific, would be the study of the ocean in breeze or gale or storm, a knowledge of steamship life, and a revelation of the peculiarities of men and women when cramped, cabined, and confined in a floating prison. Next to matrimony there is nothing better than a few months at sea for developing the realities of human character in either sex. I have sometimes fancied that the Greek temple over whose door, no thyself, was written was really the passage office of some black ball clipper line of ancient days. Man is generally desirous of the company of his fellow man or woman, but on a long sea voyage he is in danger of having too much of it. He has the alternative of shutting himself in his room and appearing only at meal times. But as solitude has few charms, and cabins are badly ventilated. Seclusion is accompanied by ennui and headache in about equal proportions. Wishing to make a journey round the world, I did not look favorably upon the ocean route. The proportions of water and landward are much like the relative quantities of sack and bread in Falstaff's hotel bill. Whether on the Atlantic or the Pacific, the Indian, or the Arctic, the appearance of ocean's blue expanse is very much the same. It is water and sky in one place, and sky and water in another. You may vary the monotony by seeing ships or shipping seas, but such occurrences are not peculiar to any one ocean desiring a reasonable amount of land travel. I selected the route that included Asiatic and European Russia. My passport properly endorsed at the Russian embassy, authorized me to enter the empire by the way of the Amur River. A few days before the time fixed for my departure, I visited a Wall Street banking house, and asked if I could obtain a letter of credit to be used in foreign travel. Certainly sir, or, was the response. Will it be available in Asia? Yes, sir, or you can use it in China, India, or Australia, at your pleasure. Can I use it in Irkutsk? Where? Sir, In Irkutsk? Really? I can't say. What is Irkutsk? It is the capital of eastern Siberia. The person with whom I conversed changed from gay to grave, and from lively to severe. With calm dignity he remarked, I am unable to say. If our lepers can be used at the place you mention, they are good all over the civilized world but I don't know anything about Irkutsk, never heard of the place before, I bowed myself out of the establishment, with a fresh conviction of the unknown character of the country whither I was bound, I obtained a letter of credit at the opposition shop, but without a guarantee of its availability in northern Asia, in a foggy atmosphere on the morning of March 21st, 1866, I rode through muddy streets to the dock of the Pacific Mail Steamship Company, there was a large party to see us off, the passengers having about three times their number of friends, there were tears, kisses, embraces, choking sighs, which ne'er might be repeated, blessings and benedictions among the serious many, and gleeful words of farewell among the hilarious few. One party of half a dozen became merry over too much champagne, and when the schoolward's bell sounded its warning, there was confusion on the subject of identity. One stout gentleman who protested that he would go to see was led ashore much against his will. After leaving the dock, I found my cabin roommate a gaunt, sallow visaged person, who seemed perfectly at home on a steamer. On my mentioning the subject of seasickness, he eyed me curiously and then ventured in opinion. "'I see,' said he. "'You are of bilious temperament and will be very ill. As for myself, I have been a dozen times over the route and am rarely affected by the ship's motion." Then he gave me some kind advice touching my conduct when I should feel the symptoms of approaching maldoom I thanked him and sought the deck. An hour after we passed Sandy Hook, my new acquaintance succumbed to the evils that afflict landsmen who go down to the sea in ships. Without any qualm of stomach or conscience, I returned the advice he had proffered me. I did not suffer a moment from the marine malady during that voyage, or any subsequent one. A footnote A, a few years ago a friend gave me a prescription which he said would prevent seasickness. I present it here as he wrote it. The night before going to sea, I take a blue pill 5 to 10 grains in order to carry the bile from the livery into the stomach. When I rise on the following morning, a dose of citrate of magnesia or some kindred substance finishes my preparation. I take my breakfast and all other meals afterward as if nothing had happened. I have used this prescription in my own case with success and have known it to benefit others. The voyage from New York to San Francisco has been so often done and is so well watered, that I shall not describe it in detail. Most of the passengers on the steamer were old Californians and assisted in endeavoring to make the time pass pleasantly. There was plenty of whist playing, storytelling, reading, singing, flirtation, and a very large amount of sleeping. So far as I knew, nobody quarreled or manifested any disposition to be There was one passenger, a heavy, burly Englishman, whose sole occupation was in drinking, A.R.F. and A.R.F., he took it on rising, then another drink before breakfast, then another between Irish steak and his buttered roll, and so on every half hour until midnight, when he swallowed a double dose and went to bed, he had a large quantity in care of the baggage master, and every day or two he would get up a few dozen pint bottles of pale ale and an equal quantity of porter. He emptied a bottle of each into a pitcher and swallowed the whole as easily as an ordinary man would take down a dose of peppermint. The empty bottles were thrown overboard. And the captain said that if this man were a frequent passenger there would be danger of a wreath of bottles in the ocean all the way from New York to Aspinwall. I never saw his equal for swallowing malt liquors. To quote from Shakespeare, with a slight alteration, he was a man. Take him for half and half. I ne'er shall look upon his like again. We had six hours at Aspinwall, a city that could be done in fifteen minutes, but were allowed no time on shore at Panama. It was late at night when we left the latter port, the waters were beautifully phosphorescent, and when disturbed by our motion they flashed and glittered like a river of stars, looking over the stern one could half imagine our track a path of fire, and the bay, ruffled by a gentle breeze, a waving sheet of light, the Pacific did not belie its name. More than half the way to San Francisco we steamed as calmly and with as little motion as upon a narrow lake. Sometimes there was no sensation to indicate we were moving at all, even varied by glimpses of the Mexican coast. The occasional appearance of the whale with its column of water thrown high into the air, and the sportive action of schools of porpoises which is constantly met with. The passage was slightly monotonous. On the 23rd day from New York we ended the voyage at San Francisco on arriving in california i was surprised at the number of old acquaintances i encountered when leaving new york i could think of only two or three persons i knew in san francisco but i met at least a dozen before being on shore twelve hours through these individuals i became known to many others by a rapidity of introduction almost bewildering californians are among the most genial and hospitable people in america and there is no part of our republic where a stranger receives a kinder and more cordial greeting. There is no eastern iciness of manner, or dignified indifference at San Francisco. Residents of the Pacific Coast have told me that when visiting their old homes they feel as if dropped into a refrigerator. After learning the customs of the Occident, one can fully appreciate the sensations of a returned Californian. Montgomery Street, the Great Avenue of San Francisco is not surpassed anywhere on the continent in the variety of physiognomy it presents there are men from all parts of america and there is no lack of european representatives china has many delegates and japan also claims a place there are merchants of all grades and conditions and professional and inprofessional men of every variety with a long array of miscellaneous characters commerce mining agriculture and manufacturers are all represented At the wharves there are ships of all nations. A traveler would find little difficulty, if he so willed it, in sailing away to Greenland's icy mountains or India's coral strand. The cosmopolitan character of San Francisco is the first thing that impresses a visitor. Almost from one standpoint he may see the church, the synagogue, and the pagoda. The mosque is by no means impossible in the future. In 1848, San Francisco was a village of little importance. The city commenced in 49 and fifteen years later it claimed a population of a hundred and twenty thousand be no one who looks at this city would suppose it still in its minority the architecture is substantial and elegant the hotels buy with those of new york in expense and luxury the streets present both good and bad pavements and are well gridiron with railways houses stores shops wharves all indicate a permanent and prosperous community there are gas works and foundries and factories As in older communities, there are the mission mills, making the warmest blankets in the world, from the wool of the California sheep, there are the fruit and market gardens whose products have a broad Magian character, there are the immense stores of wine from California vineyards that are already competing with those of France and Germany, there are I may as well stop now, since I cannot tell half the story in the limits of this chapter. Footnote P I made many notes with a view to publishing two or three chapters upon California. I have relinquished this design, partly on account of the unsiberian character of the Golden State, and partly because much that I had written is covered by the excellent book, Beyond the Mississippi, by Albert D. Richardson, my friend and associate for several years. The particulars of his death by assassination are familiar to many readers. During my stay in California, I visited the principal gold, copper. And Quicksilver Mines in the state, not omitting the famous or infamous Mariposa Tract. In company with Mr. Burlingame and General Van Valkenburg, our ministers to China and Japan, I made an excursion to the Yosemite Valley and the Big Tree Grove. With the same gentleman I went over the then completed portion of the railway which now unites the Atlantic with the Pacific coast and attended the banquet given by the Chinese merchants of San Francisco to the ambassadors on the eve of their departure. A Chinese dinner, served with Chinese customs, it was a prelude to the Asiatic life toward which my journey led me. I arrived in San Francisco on the 13th of April and expected to sail for Asia within a month. One thing after another delayed us, until we began to fear that we should never get away. For more than six weeks the time of departure was kept a few days ahead and regularly postponed. First, happened the failure of a contractor, next, the non-arrival of a ship next, the purchase of supplies, and so on through a long list of hindrances, in the beginning I was vexed, but soon learned complacency and gave myself no uneasiness, patience is an admirable quality in mankind, and can be very well practiced when, one is waiting for a ship to go to sea, on the 23rd of June we were notified to be on board at five o'clock in the evening, and to send heavy baggage before that hour, the vessel which was to receive us, lay two or three hundred yards from the wharf. In order to prevent the possible desertion of the crew, punctual to the hour, I left the hotel and drove to the place of embarkation. My trunk, valise, and sundry boxes had gone in the forenoon, so that my only remaining effects were a satchel, a bundle of newspapers, a dog, and a bouquet. The weight of these combined articles was of little consequence, but I positively declare that I never handled a more inconvenient lot of baggage. While I was descending a perpendicular ladder to a small boat, someone abruptly asked if that lot of baggage had been cleared at the custom house. Think of walking through a custom house with my portable property. Happily the question did not come from an official. It required at least an hour to get everything in readiness after we were on board. Then followed the leave-taking of friends who had come to see us off and utter their wishes for a prosperous voyage and safe return. The anchor rose slowly from the muddy bottom. Steam was put upon the engines, and the propeller whirling in the water, set us in motion. The gangway steps were erased and the rail severed our connection with America. It was night as we glided past the hills of San Francisco, spangled with a thousand lights, and left them growing fainter in the distance. Steaming through the Golden Gate we were soon on the open Pacific commencing a voyage of nearly 4,000 miles. We felt the motion of the waves and became fully aware that we were at sea the shore grew indistinct and then disappeared, the last visible objects being the lights at the entrance of the bay, gradually their rays grew dim, and when daylight came, there were only sky and water around us, far upon the unknown deep, with the billows circling round where the tireless seabirds sweep, outward bound, nothing but a speck we seem, in the waste of waters round, floating, floating like a dream, outward bound, chapter ii, the gs right, on which we were embarked, was a screw steamer of two hundred tons burden, a sort of pocket edition of the new boats of the Cunard line, she carried the flag and the person of Colonel Charles S. Bulkley, engineer-in-chief of the Russo-American Telegraph expedition, she could sail or steam at the pleasure of her captain, provided circumstances were favorable, compared with ocean steamers in general, she was a very small affair and displayed a great deal of activity she could roll or pitch to a disagreeable extent, and continued her emotion night and day. I often wished the eight-hour labor system applied to her, but my wishing was of no use. Besides Colonel Bulkley, the party in the cabin consisted of Captain Patterson, Mr. Cubbert, Mr. Anasov, and myself. Mr. Cubbert was the engineer of the steamer, and amused us at times with accounts of his captivity on the Alabama after the destruction of the Hatteras. Captain Patterson was an ancient mariner who had sailed the stormy seas from his boyhood, beginning on a whale ship and working his way from the forecastle to the quarterdeck. Mr. Anasov was a Russian gentleman who joined us at San Francisco, in the capacity of commissioner from his government to the telegraph company. For our quintet there was a cabin six feet by twelve, and each person had a sleeping room to himself. Colonel Bulkley planned the cabin of the right and I shall always consider it a misfortune that the engineer-in-chief was only 5 feet 7 in his boots rather than 6 feet and over like myself. The cabin roof was high enough for the colonel, but too low for me. Under the skylight was the only place below deck where I could stand erect. The sleeping rooms were too short for me, and before I could lie, at full length in my berth, it was necessary to pull away a partition near my head. The space thus gained was taken from a closet containing a few trifles, such as jugs of whiskey and cans of powder. Fortunately no fire reached the combustibles at any time, or this book might not have appeared. There was a forward cabin occupied by the chief clerk, the draftsman, the interpreter, and the artist of the expedition, with the first and second officers of the vessel, sailors, firemen, cook and cabin boys all included. There were 45 persons on board everybody in the compliment being masculine, we did not have a single flirtation during the voyage, I never sailed on a more active ship than the right, in ordinary seas, walking was a matter of difficulty, and when the wind freshened into a gale locomotion ceased to be a pastime, frequently I wedged myself into my berth with books and cigar boxes, on the first day out, my dog for I traveled with a dog was utterly bewildered, and evidently thought himself where he did not belong. After falling a dozen times upon his side, he succeeded in learning to keep his feet. The carpenter gave him a box for a sleeping room, but the space was so large that his body did not fill it. On the second day from port he took the bin of carpet that formed his bed and used it as a wedge to keep him in position. From that time he had no trouble, though he was not fairly on his sea legs for nearly a week. Sometimes at dinner our soup poured into our laps and seemed engaged in reconstructing the laws of gravitation. The table furniture was very uneasy, and it was no uncommon occurrence for a teacup or a tumbler to jump from its proper place and turn a somersault before stopping. We had no severe storm on the voyage, though constantly in expectation of one. In 1865 the Wright experienced heavy gales with little interruption for twelve days. She lost her chimney with part of her sails. And lay for sixteen hours in the through of the sea. The waves broke over her without hindrance and drenched every part of the ship. Cupboard gave an amusing account of the breaking of a box of salt one night during the storm. In the morning the cabin, with all it contained, was thoroughly lathered, as if preparing for a colossal shave. Halfway across the ocean we were followed by seabirds that, curiously enough, were always thickest at mealtimes. Gulls kept with us the first two days and then disappeared. Their place is being taken by boobies. The gull is a pretty and graceful bird, somewhat resembling the pigeon in shape and agility. The booby has a little resemblance to the duck, but his bill is sharp-pointed and curved like a hawk's. Beachy and one or two others speak of encountering the albatross in the North Pacific, but their statements are disputed by mariners of the present day. The albatross is peculiar to the south as the gull to the north. Gulls and boobies dart into the water when anything is thrown overboard and show great dexterity in catching whatever is edible. At night they are said to sleep on the waves, and occasionally we disturb them at their rest. One day we caught a booby by means of a hook and line, and found him unable to fly from the deck. It is said that nearly all seabirds can rise only from the water. We detained our prize long enough to attach a medal to his neck and send him away with our date, location, and name. If kept an hour or more on the deck of a ship these birds become seasick. And manifest their illness just as an able-bodied landsman exhibits an attack of marine malady. Strange they should be so affected when they are all their lives riding over the tossing waves. About 30 miles from San Francisco or the Farallon Islands, a favorite resort of seabirds, there they assemble in immense numbers, particularly at the commencement of their breeding season. Parties go from San Francisco to gather seabirds eggs at these islands, and for some weeks they supply the market. These eggs are largely used in pastry, omelettes, and other things, where their character can be disguised, but they are far inferior to hen's eggs for ordinary uses. There were no islands in any part of our course, and we found but a single shoal marked on the chart. We passed far to the north of the newly discovered Brooks Island, and kept southward of the Aleutian chain. Since my return to America I have read the account of a curious discovery on an island of the North Pacific, in 1816. The ship Canton, belonging to the East India Company, sailed from Sitka and was supposed to have foundered at sea. Nothing was heard of her until 1867, when a portion of her wreck was found upon a coral island of the Sibyl group. The remaining timbers were in excellent preservation, and the place where the crew had encamped was readily discernible. The frame of the main hatchway had been cast up whole, and a large tree was growing through it, the board bearing the word, canton lay near it, and revealed the name of the lost ship, no writing or inscription to reveal the fate of her crew, could be found anywhere, on Friday, July 13th, we crossed the meridian of 180 degrees from London, or half around the world, we dropped a day from our reckoning according to the marine custom, and appeared in our Sunday dress on the morrow, had we been sailing eastward, a day would have been added to our calendar, A naval officer once told me that he sailed eastward over this meridian on Sunday. On the following morning the chaplain was surprised to receive orders to hold divine service. He obeyed promptly, but could not understand the situation. With a puzzled look he said to an officer, This part of the ocean must be better than any other or we would not have Sunday so often. Sir Francis Drake, who sailed around the world in the time of Queen Elizabeth, did not observe this rule of the navigator and found on reaching England that he had a day too much. In the Marquesas Islands the early missionaries who came from the Indies made the mistake of keeping Sunday on Saturday. Their followers preserved this chronology, while later converts have the correct one. The result island there are two Sabbaths among the Christian inhabitants of the Cannibal Islands. The boy who desired two Sundays a week in order to have more resting time, might be accommodated by becoming a Marquesas colonist. On the day we crossed this meridian we were three hundred miles from the nearest Aleutian Islands, and about eight hundred from Kamchatka. The boobies continued around us, but were less numerous than a week or ten days earlier. If they had any trouble with their reckoning, I did not ascertain it. A day later we saw three, fur seal, playing happily in the water. We hailed the first and asked his longitude, but he made no reply. I never knew before that the seal ventured so far from land, Yet his movements are as carefully governed as those of the sea birds, and though many days in the open water he never forgets the direct course to his favorite haunts. How marvelous the instinct that guides with an certainty over the trackless waters. A few ducks made their appearance and manifested a feeling of nostalgia. Mother carries chickens, little birds resembling swallows, began to flit around us, scheming closely along the waves. There is a fiction among the sailors that nobody ever saw one of these birds alight or found its nest. Whoever harms one is certain to bring misfortune upon himself and possibly his companions. A prudent traveler would be careful not to offend this or any other nautical superstition. In case of subsequent danger the sailors might remember his misdeed and leave him to make his own rescue. Nearing the Asiatic coast we saw many whales. One afternoon. About cigar time. A huge fellow appeared half a mile distant. His blowing sounded like the exhaust of a western steamboat, and sent up a respectable fountain of spray. Covered pronounced him a high-pressure affair, with horizontal engines and carrying ninety pounds to the inch. After sporting a while in the misty distance, the whale came near us. It was almost calm and we could see him without glasses. He rose and disappeared at intervals of a minute and as he moved along he rippled the surface like a subsoil plough on a gigantic scale. After ten or twelve small dives, he threw his tail in air and went down for ten minutes or more. When he reappeared he was two or three hundred yards from his diving place. Once he disappeared in this way and came up within ten feet of our bows, had he risen beneath us the shock would have been severe for both ship and whale. After this maneuver he went leisurely around us, keeping about a hundred yards away. He is working his engines on the slow bell, said our engineer, and keeps his helm hard aport. We brought out our rifles to try this new game, though the practice was as much a trial of skill as the traditional barn at ten paces. Several shots were fired, but I did not see anything drop. The sport was amusing to all concerned, at any rate the whale didn't seem to mind it, and we were delighted at the fun. When his survey was finished he braced his helm to starboard opened his throttle valves and went away to windward. We estimated his length at hundred and twenty feet, and thought he might register a one. At the proper office, Captain Patterson called him a bowhead, good for a hundred barrels of oil and a large quantity of bone. The colonel proposed engaging him to tow us into port. Covered wished his blubber piled in our cold bunkers, the artist sketched him, and the draftsman thought of putting him on a mercator's projection. For my part I have written the little I know of his life and experiences, but it is very little. I cannot even say where he lodges, whose hats he wears, when his notes fall due, or whether he ever took a cobbler or the whooping cough. Of course this incident led to stories concerning whales. Captain Patterson told about the destruction of the ship Essex by a sperm whale 30 or more years ago. The colonel described the whale fishery as practiced by the Kim Chandales and Aleutians. These natives have harpoons with short lines to which they attach bladders or skin bags filled with air. A great many boats surround a whale and stick him with as many harpoons as possible. If successful, they will so encumber him that his strength is not equal to the buoyancy of the bladders. And in this condition he is finished with a lance. A great feast is sure to follow his capture. And every interested native indulges in whale steak to his stomach's content. The day before we came in sight of land. My dog repeatedly placed his four feet upon the rail and sniffed the wine blowing from the coast. His inhalations were long and earnest, like those of a tobacco-smoking Comanche. In her previous voyage the right carried a mastiff answering to the name of Rover. The colonel said that whenever they approached land, though long before it was in sight, Rover would put his paws on the bulwarks and direct his nose toward Th.